welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. Today we are talking about peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. There's some beautiful and critical work being done around the world to drop the perception and the roles and beliefs and assumptions that we all carry around when it comes to gender, ethnicity, religion, income, social status or color and whatever else we may choose to differentiate or separate ourselves from others. One of the organizations working in this field of conflict resolution is with us today to tell us about their programs and to share some stories about the amazing change that can occur when we are no longer living in the confinement of our roles and labels. A beautiful show is awaiting you. Peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution, that and more here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. So, as you know, each week we either do like a week's review or some sort of additional banter. And I, wa I wanted to bring up today a letter that we received from one of our listeners, Kathy. And it just, uh, well, it made me smile when she said it made her smile. I'm going to just read a teeny little bit from it. It says, you guys make me smile. I love your podcast. Have listened to all of them and have just started at the beginning again. As soon as I heard your show for the first time, I was amazed. So refreshing to finally find a show where I can feel like I finally have some agreement with how I think and feel about our earth and fellow human beings. Whenever I don't listen to your show in a day, I start to miss you guys. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that is why we do this show. I mean, we do this show for everyone else. I mean, we all love the work, but really, when I heard that, I realized that Some days we're in the studio and it's kind of like, okay, we're getting ready and we're, but we have no idea the impact that we have each time we come up to the mic. At least I don't. It's, it's good to be reminded of that people are listening out there. It is. And Helga says right in the beginning of the show that it's about relationships and it is. It's about building and strengthening this community. And even though the opportunities to interact with one another may be few and far between because we are so spread across the globe. It really does feel like a family. It does feel like community. So Kathy, we, we record this for you. You feel like family to us and we are so appreciative of your uh, words. <laughs> words, they're very touching. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Kathy. It brings up for me, Emma Watson spoke at the United Nations a few weeks back and in her speech for the He For She campaign. She said, when are we starting uh, to, and I'm, I'm doing a poor job quoting her, but when are we starting to define ourselves no longer by what separates us, but by what we have in common? So this work for me has always been about what connects us and not what separates or divides us. So this comment from Kathy really confirms that, and that's wonderful to hear that that's actually how it's being perceived. Thank you, Kathy. Our topic today is peace building very much al along those lines, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution, some amazing work being done in the world to use nature and not our roles to find peace. But before we dive into that topic, as always, here's our very own Chef Sita, aka Sita Rani Palomar, and her holistic bite. Well, I want to switch gears kind of dramatically and ask a question about how often you find yourself craving pizza. 
<laughs> and and actually, I have to admit that for me, this is probably on a weekly basis. Okay. And I'm not quick to indulge that craving because it seems like maybe not the most balanced dinner or lunch, but really more, I think I crave it at dinner time meal. But this how-to that I'm going to share with you changed my mind about when I can eat pizza and what good it brings me. And it was inspired by one of these restaurants I used to frequent when I lived in New York that did a thin crust pizza. And this is how you do it. You start with two sprouted grain tortillas. And you can use brown rice tortillas if you're looking for a gluten-free alternative. And you're getting a whole grain right away. And because it's so thin, it actually is reducing the ratio of this complex carbohydrate or maybe if traditionally, if you were to get a pizza out, a, a simple carbohydrate, to whatever else you top it with. And this is where the fun comes in. This is where the vegetables come in. I love to put pesto in between the two tortillas to kind of cement them together. And it creates very Italian flavors without having to have a lot of dough. And then you can do another layer of pesto on top of the second tortilla before you top it with all of the things that you like, whether it's roasted mushrooms or bell peppers or green peppers or olives or cheese or not cheese, whatever it is that you like. But when you make pesto, and I've talked about this in the Holistic Bite before, you can use any kind of green. You can make a kale pesto. You can make an arugula pesto. You can make a broccoli pesto. And because you're using it between these two very thin layers of tortilla, which serve as your thin crust, you're really creating a balanced ratio of vegetables to complex carbohydrates and then whatever else you decide to put on top of it. And it doesn't have to be pesto. If you don't like green pizzas, you can do sun-dried tomato tapenade and use tomatoes and olives. And the moistness is going to help, particularly if you go with a brown rice tortilla, which is a gluten-free free option to keep it a really nice texture. And you can make a cashew cheese spread to put between the two. If you are a vegan, you could use cheese between the two if you're not a vegan. But it really expands the possibilities for how you get that flavor, how you get that crispness, how you get that pizza-like experience at home without any of the guilt that you may or may not associate with what is considered kind of a decadent weekend food. But anyway, I hope this allows you to think outside the box and find some fun, creative ways to make this thin crust pizza for yourself or with your family, because it's also a really fun, interactive thing to do with kids. And that's this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. I love that. It's uh, It brings back a show we had a while back, a few months back, where we talked about kind of the junk food area that junk food doesn't have to be junk food mm -hmm. and a healthy pizza kind of dispels the myth that anything pizza rich uh, cheesy can only come in that form this sounds really healthy and wonderful and you still have that pizza experience it sounds like so yeah great i'll try that and it started taking me to that calzone space where i saw that Yeah, you did see that in my eyes, Olga. Uh, I saw you going there. I started thinking about stacking them, right? You started mm -hmm. doing one tortilla on top of the other. Then uh -huh. I started going, okay, pesto, and then, you know, some grilled onion, and then another mm -hmm. tortilla, and then pesto, and then grilled peppers and mushrooms, and pesto, and then a tortilla, and then grilled. And, I, and by, uh, while you were talking, I think I got up to about six layers. I was going, okay, that's no longer a pizza. That's a sandwich or a, or a torta lasagna. or a lasagna or something, right? But uh, I could see just all the options and all the fantastic ideas. And it would give you, 
Because pizza is about being satisfied, being satiated, right? It's that kind of fatty, little bit greasy. Carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. Yeah. yeah. Easy and easy, and right? And easy. And easy. And I think you've covered all those in that. That's great. Well, I have a friend who likes to make pizza. She goes and she buys an organic store-bought dough and rolls it out Mm -hmm. and tops it with tomato sauce and just slices of mozzarella. And I think it's really simple. But this is even easier because Mm -hmm. you don't have to take the dough and roll it out and press it into the pan. You're literally just pulling out these whole grain tortillas and topping them with all of your favorite things. And, you know, they're they're relatively small tortillas, so it's basically one stack per person. And it's fun, interactive dinner and night of the week. Are we seeing that recipe on Facebook? Mm, What a clever idea. We'll make that happen. (laughs) And that's, of course, facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation for more information on our shows and recipes and the weekly holistic bite and what's in season. Today, our topic is peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution with a wonderful guest of one of the leading organizations that addresses conflict by exposing people away from their roles and beliefs and perceptions and placing them into nature in a very specific way and form that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Wilkehi. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. Some amazing work being done around the world to drop our perceptions and the roles and beliefs and assumptions that we may all carry when it comes to gender, ethnicity, religion, income, social status, or color, or whatever else it might be that 
we choose to differentiate or separate ourselves from others. One of the organizations leading this field of conflict resolution is Outward Bound Peacebuilding. And with us today from New York City is the executive director, Anna Patel. Anna, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. And we know your training started for this job over 20 years ago as a teenager when you started hiking with Outward Bound, now leading Outward Bound Peace Building. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So, Anna, I, well, I'd like to start off with, first of all, a description of what Outward Bound is. And then if you could tell us how Outward Bound Peace Building either sprouted or began from that. And uh, what is the mission of Outward Bound Peace Building? Well, Outward Bound is an international network of Outward Bound schools. We call them schools because we really see ourselves as educators in the Outward Bound community. We just happen to use the wilderness or outdoors um, most often as our classroom. And we're focused on what we call experiential learning, so learning by doing. And we believe that doing is a really critical part of learning. So what's exciting about Outward Bound and what I didn't know until I, I joined as a professional, I certainly didn't know it as a young Outward Bounder in my teens climbing in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, where I'm originally from, was that there are Outward Bound schools all over the world. Outward Bound started in the United Kingdom. It was uh, part of the vision of a really progressive educator in the 1930s who was looking for different ways to excite young people to be involved in their communities and to give do public service and to um, gain leadership experience. And so he, he set up really these um, ideas of courses that use the outdoors and uh, rescue and service as part of character development and leadership development, mostly for young people. But now that vision has stretched to include sort of everybody. And there are outward bound schools from Oman to Hong Kong, Singapore, Zimbabwe, Ecuador, Canada, and all throughout the world in about 33 different countries. So that really gives you a sense of outward bound and certainly more, I think, of, of the sense of that it's an international sort of vision and community. In terms of outward bound peace building, We really began when an instructor, an Outward Bound instructor from the United States um, named Elizabeth Anglin Knox had an idea as she was in graduate school looking at studying conflict uh, resolution and international affairs. And she had the idea that there was a tool missing from the sort of peace builders category, toolkit. They needed an approach that would really bring different sides, um, people from different sides of, of divided communities together. And they were, she really saw professionals searching for that tool. She at that point had about 10 or more years with Outward Bound as an instructor and a professional. She thought to herself, I know what that tool is. And she brought this idea of bringing together Outward Bound's experience and approach and methodology to divided communities around the world. And that's how we really got started as an entity in 2009. And the mission of Outward Bound Peace Building is really to inspire and challenge uh, local peace builders, people who are living and working in divided communities, to work together to build peace and using this idea of experiential learning as the methodology. Again, you're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palmar. And with us is Anna Patel, the Executive Director 
of the arm of Outward Bound that deals with conflict resolution, Outward Bound peace building. Anna, with Outward Bound, it is an extracurriculum activity. It's not a school in itself. Who can come and how do you enroll? Is this just summer classes or do you offer two-week extensions or weekend courses? If, if somebody were to picture this, what would they find? Well, Outward Bound Peacebuilding offers two kinds of programming. One we call deep engagement programming, and that's really working with communities that are in conflict, that are divided in some way, violent conflict or otherwise. And there we're really focused on members of that community. Other programs that we offer are more about education and training, and those are pretty much open um, to people who are interested, who are doing work in conflict resolution and peacebuilding. We have one coming up in January called the Practicum for Experiential Peacebuilding, which takes place in Costa Rica. January is a great time to go to Costa Rica, and that is really for people who want hands-on, applied experience in conflict resolution um, in a multicultural, diverse kind of environment. But I do want to um, tackle one of the first part of your question. Outward Bound actually has schools all across the, the country and the world. So in New York City Outward Bound, and we have offices here in our brother school, New York City Outward Bound, they run about 15 public schools in New York City together with the New York City public education system with a curriculum that we call expeditionary learning that really integrates learning by doing together with the needs of students in uh, middle school and high school in New York City. The programs you offer can be found in a number of public schools. There are summer classes and, and multi-week classes, and then you have some programs that are by invitation only. Am I summarizing this correctly? Yes. Yes, you are. I just found that very interesting that you've partnered with the New York uh, Board of Education, did you say, or school system? Yes. And so you are actually working together to bring these programs. That is, that's fantastic. Yes. And I should be clear, that's New York City Outward Bound and why we are huge fans and colleagues. They are separate from Outward Bound Peacebuilding. Okay. okay. But we certainly have collaborated on some issues of curriculum um, and ideas swapping, et cetera. But they have a very robust program that's been in place for over 25 years now. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Thanks it for sounds like that. you have a really robust program. You've got two arms of what you do at Outward Bound Peacebuilding, which have different activities. Can you describe some of the activities that you do in these programs? Yes, and I'd, I'd love to do that through a story a little bit. Our founding program um, and the program that we hope now to take on to other communities and that we're working with uh, a number of possible places to move that programming on to is with leaders in Israel and Palestine um, in the West Bank. We focus on what we call emerging leaders, so next generation leaders, people sort of 25 to 45, it's a pretty open range, people who we can already see leadership um, capacity. We can see that they are influencers in their communities. We do a different group each year, and they start with a what we see as an, a catalyst expedition, which means that six Palestinians, um, people who self-identify as Palestinian, and six Jewish Israelis join us on an expedition in the wilderness. We've often, in the last couple of years, used Croatia as the place, the Velebit mountain range, which is an incredible mountain range, takes you right down to the Adriatic Sea. They come together in Zagreb for the first time never having met each other. 
the groups are usually from different parts of society. So um, the story I would love to tell is about our religious leaders group. Um, and this, we had 14 participants on the expedition. We had, I think, three or four imams and other religious teachers from the West Bank. We had Presbyterian and other Christian leaders, I think three. And then we had a number of rabbis and a religious teachers from the Jewish side. And they met in Zagreb for the first time and went on a 10-day hiking expedition in May of 2012. And so they come together, they meet at a dinner, and the next morning they are outfitted and dropped off at the trailhead, basically. We had done this expedition with them for five years, with different groups for five years, and always had wonderful weather. Six hours into this hike, it started to snow. And on the hike, these are, these are long hikes. Um, Outward Bound is all about challenge. It's about getting you out of your comfort zone. So dropping, there's no cell phones. There's no contact with your family or your community. The whole idea is to get people in a place where, one, they can start to listen to themselves, get, have a sense of the wilderness around them, reflect on where they are in their lives, and create community with the people around them. They hiked. They rock climb. They repel. They lived together, they make camp together every evening, they make meals together. And in this particular group, they had a very difficult time. Um, many of them were not ready for, in, in terms of equipment, for the physical challenge of snow in the mountains <laughs> in Croatia. Some of them, one of them had high top sneakers on instead of boots. Like we were really having an issue with people not having adequate equipment, although we had done our best to prepare them and to, you know, give them clothing lists, et cetera. So when, at one evening, when the snow really became sort of two or three feet, the group from the West Bank really said, we're done. You know, we haven't done this kind of physical activity for years. We are exhausted. We don't have enough equipment. And frankly, with this group, that quickly becomes a political issue because there's no access to outdoors equipment and boot suppliers because of the occupation of the West Bank. And that is what they immediately go to. So it becomes a political discussion uh, quickly, not just a discussion about who has um, the correct equipment. So the group negotiated with our facilitators for hours around this topic. And we had to move from what do you want to what do you need, which is a basic sort of approach in, in conflict resolution and, and negotiation is moving from the want to the need. And in that, they decided what they really needed was they wanted to sleep under a roof for the evening. They wanted a warm meal, and they wanted better equipment to finish the journey. Because at this point, the Jewish participants really wanted to finish the journey. They, they really saw the value on it, and they wanted, their, they wanted their colleagues from the West Bank to finish the journey with them. So the facilitators, who are amazing and able to, to make miracles happen in the mountains, found a hiker's hut and were able to get a roof over the head and a fire going and put on that warm meal. But the issue of equipment continued to be one that was challenging for the group. And they sat in a circle after their warm meal, feeling much better about the situation, still snowing outside, and discussed it, both the political ramifications of the no equipment issue as well as, uh, as all other sides to it, until finally one of the Jewish participants went and got his backpack, and he dumped all the contents of it into the middle of the circle. And then one by one, every single person around the circle did that, including the facilitators, including uh, those that came from the Palestinian side. And they redistributed all the shoes, jackets, backpacks, equipment equally so that everyone felt that they had adequate coverage for the rest of the trip. 
that for us is the outward bound moment. That's what we're looking for. And it looks different on every single expedition, but we can more or less guarantee it's going to happen around the fifth day. Mm. (laughs) So we are focusing on a moment when the group changes from being a lot of individuals who have joined this kind of expedition, this journey, to being a community together. If you can imagine the next day, the snow finished, the sun came out, and they were literally walking in each other's shoes. <laughs> and that's really what we're looking for. Yeah, that's what we're looking for here in an organic conversation as well. <laughs> With us is Anna Patel, the executive director wow. of Outward Bound Peace Building, who's joining us from New York City in this hour on peace building, using nature, and sometimes even the snow in the mountains as a mm-hmm. catalyst for conflict resolution. This is an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Thank you, Anna, for that beautiful, beautiful story. And of course, we want to dive even deeper that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned for more. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Spicely Organics offers more than 200 different organic spices and dried herbs to choose from. Classics like oregano and cumin, exotics like aji amarillo, and blends like tikka masala. Spicely helps nourish your body while embracing sustainable, eco-friendly, and ethical practices always. Take wellness into your own hands and creativity into your own kitchen. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at spicely.com. We're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. We're joined by Anna Patel, who started her training on the job over 20 years when she hiked with Outward Bound in her home territory of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia to learn what it takes as a group and as an individual to come together and find solutions. She's now the executive director of Outward Bound Peacebuilding, 
And she sometimes places groups in pretty harsh environments, how we just heard before the break, a story of a group that went to Croatia that started off in Zagreb and worked itself into the mountains of Croatia, a group of Palestine and Israeli and Jewish youth that at the end of the fifth day had found the group dynamic over the identification as individuals. Anna, thanks again for being with us in this hour. Hearing those stories, how do you decide where you will set up a program? Do you look at current conflicts and conflict situations around the world? It's a great question. And I think it's important to know that we really have an open vision and definition of what conflict is. So while my training um, really comes from international sort of political-based violence um, and conflict, our board is really open to what kind of conflict we're looking at. And so to give you sort of a thought around that, these looking at uh, community conflicts, even looking at some of our conflicts in Washington and seeing whether our tool of outbound peace building might offer a different way to approach it and bring people together from different sides of conflict. So when we are looking together at where a new program might be, our most important factor is a local partner. So we believe strongly that Part of what we're doing is investing and supporting in local leaders because they are best placed to solve the conflicts in their own societies and communities. We need an incredible local partner who's really excited about our approach. We're also feeling that, that the work needs to be sustained by local actors and, and our local partner. And so, for example, when we look around the world and at different communities, we're looking for either an outward bound school in that country who's willing to continue the work after a number of years, after we help design and, and train, et cetera, or another kind of partner. One example might be Romania, where we were actually reached out to by a peace-building organization in Romania who's asked us to help them design a program together with Outward Bound Romania, because there actually is an Outward Bound school in Romania, in Transylvania, to build a program for uh, young people that focuses on ethnic Hungarians, Romanians, and Roma youth who, um, where there has been some non, not violent, but definitely some tension between yes. those groups over the last couple of years, and it's of concern. And so in that case, they're really looking to prevent any further incidents of conflict. So a local partner is most important, that it fits our mission, of course, in terms of really being a divided community where we think our tool can be helpful. And then there are the practical aspects of finding funding for such a thing. And is it more the case that you're being invited, that somebody reaches out to you and say, says, we have this situation here and can you help us solve it? Or do you sometimes approach a conflict that you know of and say, we have partners here, why don't we uh, bring this program to this area because it seems like a, a real hot spot f where our work could potentially make a big difference? We prefer to be invited, and that's the way it has sort of happened, and that might be through a partner organization. For example, the way uh, we ended up starting a program in Israel and uh, and with young leaders, from Israeli and Palestinian leaders, is working with Search for Common Ground Jerusalem. So Search for Common Ground is a global peace-building organization. They were very interested in our approach, and The Search for Common Ground Jerusalem office was the one who was ready to pilot it. So in that case, we were really invited to pilot the program. 
Now, we do have these training and education programs. We offer scholarships. Um, about half the uh, people who go through that program are on scholarship, and we raise money to make sure to support people from all over the world. And often new program ideas come through people who have been in that training or education program. One example might be a wonderful group of um, new colleagues that we had from Rwanda that attended our course in Costa Rica. And from that, they have been doing experiential learning type of work in the outdoors in Rwanda for a group called Frontiers. And they're very excited to partner with us. And we're exploring opportunities to do that. If people hear this and this show is listened to around the world and know of a conflict in their geographical area between groups, ethnic groups or whatever it may be, they can reach out to you and ask for your help. And then you would then assess if it's possible to set up a program with outward bound Is that how it works? Somebody can reach out to you and say, we really need your help. How can we make this work? I would welcome that. That would be wonderful. Again, with us is Anna Patel, the Executive Director of Outward Bound Peacebuilding, who's joining us today in this hour from New York City, this hour about peacebuilding, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. Anna, it really sounds to me like by getting people into the natural world is you're actually helping them to become more human again or maybe not again, but recognize their, the humanity within each one of us. Can you, do you have another story of, of how you brought people together and um, how, you, how there was a change, that change that occurred because of being in the natural world and being together? Yes, the being in the natural world, the using the wilderness as sort of our classroom and our teacher and our catalyst is really primary. And it's what makes us sort of a unique as a program as well. And we, we use that for a couple reasons. One, we believe that the leaders of the future need to have a sense of an experience of wilderness. And you would be probably not surprised given what the kind of people you all talk to regularly, but it is unbelievable sometimes to me how few people have really had their own experience in the wilderness as well. And, and we're hoping that they come out of the experience with a sense of stewardship, of responsibility. There are certainly lots and lots of stories in terms of how uh, how it's worked, but the challenge piece of it is important too. So one example I'll use again from the program with Israeli and Palestinian leaders is of one of our first groups. These were political leaders, young, emerging, but already influential in their communities. Everyone from the Likud party to their counterparts on from the West Bank. One evening after a series of maybe since small uh, interactions, one of the political leaders really exploded around the campfire. He went straight to the conflict. He got very, very upset. What was great about that was that the group had already been working together for two or three days. They had been holding each other's ropes, rock climbing. They had been carrying each other's packs, going up big summits. They had been conversing together in beautiful glades, getting up early in the morning and doing a summit ascents. So they knew how to work together as a group. And the facilitators were really able to step back and let them do their work because they had learned in a wilderness setting, you have to depend on your group. It is very difficult to you know, survive without help. It's hard to put the tents up. It's hard to do a meal, get a campfire going, stay warm at night without counting on your group. And so the wilderness piece of that really gave them an opportunity to work as a group. And when there was a problem with the community, they were then able to work together because they had that practice. What was fascinating is sort of a after point to that story is the next day 
and we did not engineer this, I promise. But the next day, those two ended up having to, the Israeli and the Palestinian political leader ended up, who had had sort of the conflict the night before, ended up rock climbing together the next day. That meant that someone was actually, one of them's actually holding the rope <laughs> while the person who they had uh, had this conflict with is climbing up a rock face. So literally having the other person's life in their hands. They spent the whole day sort of tentatively asking each other questions about their faith, about their political beliefs, about their family, their children, their uh, what they did, uh, extracurricular. And at the very end, they reached the top, and there were actually some tourists coming through. And uh, they were sitting together. They were exhausted. They were looking at the sun setting over a magnificent Canyonlands kinds of view. And the tourist said, where are you all from? And the Israeli participant said, we're from Israel and Palestine. And he put his hand over his mouth, and he looked at his friend, and he said, I've never said that word out loud before. So for him, some kind of reality came to place out of that interaction. And the wilderness was a huge you know, actor, teacher, classroom for that experience for them. Anna, this reminds me of the Native American longhouses where you don't leave until there's a win-win, until a solution or resolution to a conflict is achieved. There's no loser that will ever leave the house or in, in your case, your program. We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask the critical question, of course, if you follow those participants then for years to come, what have you seen? What's the lasting change in those individuals? How, how have they applied their lives and their lessons learned at Outward Bound Peacebuilding from then on? Well, I have to say I am heartened by what we see. We're in touch with all of the alums, for example, from the Israeli-Palestinian Emerging Leaders Program and certainly all the alums from our practicum program. And 90% of them participate in alum activities, which I think is a pretty good comeback rate. For example, we have a retreat somewhere in the world every year, and we invite alums from the programs to come and join us. They pay their own way, and we get a very, very strong participation. And it's a way to sort of touch base again, to do elements of the program. I think um, I maybe talked about it, but that uh, the solo is a very critical part of what Outward Bound does. It's always on an Outward Bound program. So even when you come back for the retreat, you do what we call a mini solo for the morning out in the wilderness on your own. And we see people coming back and really using the program as sort of a touchstone to these retreats, uh, which we think is important. We have a huge amount of financial support, even if it's in small amounts. We ask our alums to, to support our work and make scholarships possible for others. And we have a very strong response to that. And then we have wonderful stories, for example, from our business leaders. We have an Israeli businessman who does sort of branding and marketing, who is in uh, working with uh, his friend from the West Bank who has a family insurance company, and they've done all the branding and marketing for that company. It's the first partnership of like that that we know of. We have another woman leader um, who has started the first Jerusalem Arbitration Center, which helps to do conflict resolution between businesses and has reached out to the business leaders group to ask them to bring case studies to that so it becomes a working facility for those communities. So we have wonderful stories of what these young leaders have done with their lives um, after participating in the program. Fantastic. Such good and critical work. And yes, change is possible and healing can occur when we, what Mark said, strip ourselves 
of all the beliefs and really look at the humanness of the experience of life. Thank you, Anna, for all your work. And it sounds like we want to follow this work. We're all <laughs> in awe listening to you and those stories. Beautiful work around the world. Again, that's Anna Patel, the executive director of Outward Bound Center for Peacebuilding, Outward Bound Peacebuilding. If you go to outwardboundpeace.org, all one word, outwardboundpeace.org, you can actually find more information on the programs and get in touch with Anna or her amazing staff in New York City or around the world and inquire if those programs could be applied to your conflict situation that you might be experiencing in your region. If that's the case, again, outwardboundpeace.org. Thank you, Anna, for spending the hour with us here on An Organic Conversation. Lovely to have you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor. I was reading a news piece on a study recently about how the experience of being powerful actually diminishes our capacity to empathize with others, to feel empathy for other people. And this is such a beautiful example of how when you drop that position of me against you or having dominion over something that you have or whatever might incite the conflict, you start to see how much you have in common. You start to share some common ground. I mean, that story of those those two political leaders who when seated together after a day of helping one another climb this rock face were able to recognize one another for the first time in their lives is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary demonstration of what happens when when we don't need to have power, but we need to have connection and understanding. And you know what this what this brings me back to, I'm in the process of rereading Terry Tempest Williams' uh, short stories, Red. And there's this whole part where she had a significant part in, in trying to make sure we maintained our wilderness, especially in the, in the Southwest. And she was talking about Aldo Leopold, mm-hmm. right, who 40 years before the Wilderness Act even became the Wilderness Act, he was fighting to make sure that we had wilderness. And this was during the Depression, at a time when people weren't eating, in a time where people didn't have jobs. And he was out there saying, we need this to be the best human beings we possibly could be. And that, and it just sticks with, stuck with me since I read that story last week. And it's like, just, mm-hmm. it's so true. We need, and we need to get out in the wilderness to truly become ourselves. See something bigger than us and mm-hmm. be in awe. That was the hour of peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. Again, with us, Anna Patel, the executive director of Outward Bound Peace Building, outwardboundpeace.org, the website, who joined us from New York City. Coming up is produce. <laughs> Always. <laughs> we'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bocchetti. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. 
Spicely Organics emphasis has long been on the natural health benefits of organic spices, and now Spicely is excited to share more health benefits with the introduction of their hand-blended organic teas. Choose from black, green, white, mate, oolong, pu'er, and herbals blended with their signature spices like vanilla rooibos, sweet turmeric, and honey lavender. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at spicely.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour, peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. Again with us, the executive director of Outward Bound Peace Building, Anna Patel, who joined us today from New York City. The website outwardboundpeace.org. One of the things that really jumped out for me from what Anna was talking about was that beyond these programs that are set up in specific regions, Outward Bound offers practicums for experiential peace building for anybody to go to. They've got one in January in Costa Rica, and I'm sure that there are many more throughout the year. And it's an opportunity for anybody to go and learn these skills and probably, I imagine, make significant connections with other people around the world who are interested in peace and find ways that you can continue to apply your desire to create a more just world in a very tangible way. Yeah, it reminds me of the Rumi quote that just came to my mind. Beyond the idea of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. Beyond that field of wrong doing and right doing, we're now coming from Rumi to Rutabaga. <laughs> What's next is <laughs> Speaking our of very own, <laughs> our very own <laughs> Mark Mulcahy and What's in Season. should see the smile that Helga gets on his face every time he says yeehaw and he, when that music starts up. It is, yep. it just... He's a cowboy put, at heart. Yeah, he's a, he, and, you know, in Germany, there's a lot of cowboys come from Germany. Yep. Um, and speaking <laughs> of... singing cowboys. Yeah, that's where the, the original singing cowboy came from. So, speak, speaking of bad transitions, <laughs> when Helga was saying from Rumi to Rutabaga, which I really appreciated, and Rutabaga is actually, this is a really great time for Rutabagas right now here in the, here in the beginning <laughs> right. of November. It's not what we're talking about, but it is. So, Helga, you're right on track. So, Earl, today, for all of you out there who don't know who Earl is, it's Earl Herrick, the voice of the produce market from San Francisco Produce Market uh, and Earl's Organic Produce, is on the line with us. We are talking about cranberries because this is really the one time of year where you talk cranberries, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk about, there's so many produce items that you could actually talk about all year long, right? And including rutabagas. They're almost in the store year round. Turnips, rutabagas, all those types of things, sweet potatoes that are familiar to this fall season. And yet, cranberries have a very short window unless you're buying them frozen. And it's right now. And so, Earl, what is the market looking like for cranberries this year? Hey, how y'all doing? Hey, Earl. <laughs> We're great. Well, the market is actually very strong. There's great production out of all the main areas, which are Massachusetts, actually even down into New York and New Jersey, Wisconsin, parts of uh, uh, all over Canada, and, of course, in the West Coast out here in Oregon. Production's very strong, and we're going to be seeing them, of course, You've been seeing them for the last couple of weeks, and most retailers have some supply all the way through Christmas, and then 
whatever they have fresh this, that's still around, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna freeze. So they are available year round. But this, of course, is when the fresh are available, and you're gonna find them in kind of two, mostly two types. In in organically, you can find them in in bulk, which would be the third. Which, as I just said, they're out bulk, and you can buy them by the pound as much as you want. Otherwise, favorite, they're right? in poly bags. And the other way, which is the last couple of years, has become pretty popular, and that's the clamshell. And I like the clamshell because they're easier to see, and they're and you can also obviously reuse the clamshell. So you, if you're not interested in using them all at once, then you can keep them in, the, in that packaging. And also at the retail level, they're easy to stack, they're easy to see. I think they're much more attractive. And you know, Earl, on that clamshell, I also think that it allows a little bit more airflow through them because the clamshells do have those little small holes at the bottom at the top of the clamshell and cranberries actually do need airflow around them it's actually beneficial for them so that they don't get so much mold or or moisture in there which causes mold earl so the crop you said it's a really abundant crop a really good crop what does that mean for us as consumers when we're buying cranberries this year i I think what you're going to do you're going to find depending upon the configuration if it's an eight ounce or a 12 ounce or a pound it really varies from store to store but you're looking at about you know two to three dollars a pound and most people will need about a pound or two perhaps you know depending on how how big a feast you have going to make the cranberry sauce and you that you want and of course they keep well now when you're looking at your packaging or if they're bulk you want to get firm whole berries they do get soft after they've been on display and red ones are a little more are, are considered ripe so those are the two things you want to look for. But they keep well, and, and not like they mold. So I know I've had them, and perhaps you guys have that experience, where you have a bowl of them, and you go through them, and, and some are soft, you just throw them away. And it's very easy. It's not like a tedious, oh, they're moldy, and i got to separate them. So they're pretty easy to use. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, good ones will float. You can put them in water, and they'll float. Precisely. And, you know, many people aren't really familiar how they're grown, and, and they're not grown in water. That's a process that... The, the fields get flooded to actually help harvest the product. So they do need a fair amount of moisture, but they are not grown in water. And another thing along that line is actually with that, Earl, that very sandy soil that they grow them in, is often growers will use water to get rid of pests. They'll actually flood the fields when they know they've got a pest problem because the pest wouldn't be able to handle that. And I want to make sure that we touch on something is you're going to go into your market as you do every year, and there's going to be a conventional bag of cranberries there great. If you want to buy that, that's fantastic. One thing you should know is that there's a lot of pesticides being used, even in cranberry production on the conventional level, even though there's huge strides happening in doing more IPM, integrated pest management, and using less pesticides, there's still a lot of pesticides being used and actually fairly toxic ones. So when you go in there and you see that the organic cranberries are two or three or $4 a pound more, think about that you're only buying a pound you're only buying two pounds. You're not buying 30 pounds of this. And so when you're making that choice, you really are making a choice for higher water quality, less pesticide residue, and especially not only for yourself, but for the environment, because all those pesticides are harmful for 
birds and wildlife and things like that. And you're probably only buying it these two months of the year. Max, probably, yeah. Unless you're going to freeze a bunch of them and then for juicing later. And it's a good point, Mark. The, the pesticide use is terrestrial, of course. It's used on the soil they're grown on, but then the fields get flooded. So any pesticide residue or if pesticides were applied just a few days prior before harvest, that water will sink in and will get drained away into waterways and into the groundwater. Mm -hmm. So that is an aquatic cycle as well for pesticides. It's not just terrestrial. And then, of course, your, your dinner plate. But it's an interesting crop to consider buying organic for sure. And you were saying you're looking for firm berries, Earl. That's, that's, yes. Those are the ones you would cook down. And what's your favorite way of doing sauce? So what do you do with cranberries right now? You know, I, I, use a little, I use a little water just to cr create a medium, and I, I squeeze a little Satsuma mandarin in there, and I like to use, uh, eat, whether it's going to be organic uh, uh, sugar or, or honey. Of course, if you're using honey, you're using a little more liquid, so you may want to cut back. And it, it's that simple, but I like it to put a little squeeze of uh, Satsuma in there, which is perfect because, mm, you know, nice. they coexist the same time of year. So, yeah, I, you know, they're friends. Cool. Cranberry and citrus <laughs> together are amazing. And now I'm dreaming about cranberry orange yeah. muffins. And, and, mm. and, you know, an interesting thing, on a couple of shows ago during our vitamin show, they were mentioning the, the correlation between citrus and scurvy, how they, they when people were getting scurvy on these long voyages, they realized that citrus was something that could help because of the vitamin mm -hmm. C content. Mm -hmm. So there's the, there's the connection. But there's even a further connection because they also realized that with cranberries being uh, high in vitamin C, and with having that hard shell, they could put those on boats, and they would last for a long time. So that could actually help prevent scurvy as well by eating cranberries on these voyages. And we've come full circle. Exactly. Our <laughs> topic in this hour, Earl, was peace building, using nature as a catalyst for conflict resolution. And we are ending with your words that cranberries and satsumas are friends. So if they can be friends, so can we all be friends as <laughs> well. Go. Thank you, Earl. Thanks, Earl. So fun. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you next week, Earl. <laughs> yeah, enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Wonderful. Wow. Packed hour. And yes, full circle. Nice. Mm -hmm. Thank and you. and the, I think the biggest circle that I found today, besides all the wonderful <laughs> stories. Here comes the Mark joke. <laughs> no, 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 no. Is how you tied in Rumi and rutabaga. I just, I just absolutely love it. Out in the field where you find rutabagas and no conflict. Is yes, <laughs> that's where you will find me. That's where you'll that's find right. me. Wonderful. Well, that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. <laughs> bye Thanks bye for now. joining. See you next week. <laughs> an Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye.